Hello and welcome to Spot Diagnosis, a podcast about all things dermatological, brought to you by the Skin and Cancer Foundation, also known as the Skin Health Institute in Melbourne, Australia. I am Dr. Tom Covey. And I'm Associate Professor Alvin Chong. We are your co-hosts. This episode we'll be talking about psoriasis and we're very lucky to have with us our guest, Associate Professor Peter Foley. Professor Foley is a leading expert on psoriasis and serves as Australia's only counsellor on the International Psoriasis Council. He's also a director of research at the Skin and Cancer Foundation and has been involved in over 100 clinical trials for diseases including psoriasis. Thank you very much for being with us, Professor Foley. Because psoriasis is such a big topic, this is going to be a two-part episode. In the first part, we will talk about what psoriasis is, epidemiology, clinical manifestations, and comorbidities. And for the second part, we will talk about how we manage psoriasis. All right, so let's just start, um, kick things off. Um, Professor Foley, what is psoriasis? Psoriasis is a common chronic immune-mediated disease that presents primarily on the skin. But it's often associated with other systemic manifestations affecting many body organs, particularly the joints. How common is psoriasis, Peter? The estimates in the literature suggest that psoriasis ranges anything from less than half of 1% up to more than 10%, but the most widely accepted figure is that psoriasis affects somewhere between 2 and 3% of the general population. So what's the most common age of onset in psoriasis? Psoriasis can commence or appear at any age, but it's often reported as being bimodal in onset. So classically late adolescence or early adulthood with a second peak of onset somewhere in the 50s or 60s. So it's not just young people, but it can occur at any age, including those over the age of 50. That's really interesting, Peter. Um, I often see patients who present at 50 or 60 and they're often astonished when you tell them that they've got psoriasis because that's when you first get it. So here's our tip number one. Don't forget about late onset psoriasis. Just because someone hasn't had a history of psoriasis before doesn't mean that they can't develop psoriasis later in life. What about gender? Is psoriasis more common in males or females? Psoriasis occurs equally in males and females in terms of overall prevalence. However, it's reported that the age of onset tends to be younger in females, and a few more recent studies have suggested that men have more severe disease measured by various objective means. Very interesting. Is psoriasis more common in any particular ethnicity? Psoriasis occurs across all racial groups. However, a lower prevalence of psoriasis has been reported in non-Caucasian populations, so particularly East Asian and Africans. What about stress? Can stress actually bring psoriasis out? Stress is an interesting one. It's often said to uh, trigger or aggravate psoriasis. However, a recent review reported that there is insufficient data to confirm the association between stress and psoriasis. What about environmental factors? Are there any particular factors that influence the likelihood of getting psoriasis? Psoriasis certainly appears to be more common the further one moves from the equator. Whether this is due to a difference in sun exposure because ambient UV levels are lower as we move from the equator or whether it's due to a difference in the climate is yet to be determined. Peter, we hear of a lot of things that can you know, exacerbate the risk of uh, developing psoriasis. Can you tell us about some of these? 
We know that smoking seems to be the most controllable environmental factor. So we know that patients who smoke are more likely to develop psoriasis, and that's not just psoriasis in general, but particularly palmoplantar psoriasis involving the palms and soles, which can occur as a pustular form or a hyperkeratotic form. We also know that smokers tend to be more resistant to most of the treatments we have for psoriasis. In addition, we know that alcohol consumption tends to correlate with psoriasis severity. It's debated whether severe psoriasis tends to encourage people to drink more or whether people that drink more are more likely to develop psoriasis. But certainly, alcohol in moderation is the most one should consume. The other lifestyle or individual component that we know may contribute to psoriasis is obesity. Patients with psoriasis are more likely to be overweight or obese, and we know that obesity contributes to psoriasis, particularly with the inflammatory chemicals that adipose tissues produce. And medications, Peter? There are a range of medications that may precipitate or aggravate psoriasis. The ones that are classically reported are lithium, beta blockers, particularly the older beta blockers, antimalarials, interferon, particularly when it was being used to treat hepatitis, and paradoxically, some of the treatments we use for psoriasis, particularly the tumor necrosis factor inhibitors, can induce psoriasis or exacerbate it. I've also heard that certain infections can trigger psoriasis. Um, which particular infection would that be? Infections really of any sort can aggravate psoriasis, but streptococcal tonsillitis is particularly associated with gut hate psoriasis, but can aggravate other forms of psoriasis. And we also know that HIV can aggravate or exacerbate psoriasis. Okay. So, you know, for clinicians, the, the, the way psoriasis is diagnosed is usually clinically. So can you tell us, Peter, what does psoriasis actually look like? Well, as, as you mentioned, psoriasis is typically diagnosed clinically rather than requiring histopathological confirmation. The most common form of psoriasis is what's referred to as plaque psoriasis or chronic plaque psoriasis. And th that form of psoriasis accounts for at least 70% and probably even more than that. So chronic plaque psoriasis presents as red raised patches of skin called plaques, usually with overlying silvery scales. Typically, psoriasis, because it's an endogenous condition, occurs symmetrically on the body, so occurs equally on each side, as compared to an exogenously caused dermatosis, such as a contact dermatitis, which is usually one-sided, or an infection, such as tinea, which may occur on just one foot. Right. Um... I've read that sora is a Greek word meaning to itch. How itchy is psoriasis? Once upon a time, the teaching used to be that psoriasis was the non-itchy red scaly rash, whereas eczema was the red scaly rash, and that was one way to differentiate. More recent studies have shown that if you actually ask someone with psoriasis, are you itchy, more than 80% of people say they have some itch with their psoriasis. However, it's not as severe as what is seen in conditions such as atopic dermatitis or scabies or urticaria. Peter, do you have any other tips that might make you more suspicious of psoriasis based on the clinical findings? If someone presents with a red scaly rash that typically is very well demarcated, probably psoriasis should be at the top of one's list. 
other factors that might contribute to thinking about psoriasis would include a family history of psoriasis, what's called the Kerbner or isomorphic phenomena, which is where psoriasis or other conditions spread in areas of injury or trauma. The distribution is usually fairly typical. So psoriasis often occurs on the elbows or knees. Other areas that may be involved include other parts of the scalp and particularly nail disease, which occurs in more than three quarters of patients with psoriasis. As you mentioned earlier that more than 70% of psoriasis are chronic plaque psoriasis, how else can psoriasis present? In addition to chronic plaque psoriasis, psoriasis may present as guttate psoriasis, inverse or flexural psoriasis, pustular psoriasis, either localised on the palms and soles or generalised, erythrodermic psoriasis, or it may simply present as just nail psoriasis, so simply involving the nails. Tell us about guttate psoriasis, Peter. Guttate psoriasis, or guttate, means drop-like, often referred to as looking like drops of rain on sand. I often would explain that it looks like someone's got a paintbrush and just flicked it at an individual. There's a strong association with streptococcal tonsillitis. So often younger patients develop a strep tonsillitis and then anything up to a couple of weeks later, they present with small red papules rather than plaques of psoriasis, much more common on the torso or trunk than on the arms and legs, but can occur on the proximal limbs, tends to occur really sudden in its onset, usually in childhood or young adulthood. Does it then go away um, once the, the infection's gone away? Whilst psoriasis is generally considered a chronic condition, the one form that may occur as a single episode is guttate psoriasis. So it's estimated that 40 to 50% of people with guttate psoriasis will have a single episode. They'll be treated or it will resolve spontaneously and they'll never have another episode. Unfortunately, the other 50 to 60% of people, it's a a forewarning that later in life they will develop usually more typical chronic plaque psoriasis. Interesting. Is that a particular way of knowing who will go on to develop psoriasis? Unfortunately, no. We probably have missed that opportunity now that we have effective therapies for psoriasis. But one argument is that if someone presents with an acute guttate form of psoriasis is to really hit them quite aggressively with therapy in the hope that we can switch it off and therefore prevent the development of T-cells really residing in the skin that will trigger psoriasis off at a later date. What about pustular psoriasis? Pustular psoriasis can occur either as a disease that occurs just on the palms and soles, more and more being referred to as palmoplantar pustulosis because it can occur in isolation rather than in the setting chronic plaque psoriasis. It's probably best considered a comorbid condition because it's more common in people with psoriasis than in people that don't have it, but it can occur in isolation. And there's a generalised pustular form. People with generalised pustular psoriasis are often quite unwell. They have erythroderma, meaning they're red often from head to toe. People that are erythrodermic tend to be metabolically unstable and hemodynamically unstable. So we really have to watch what's happening with their electrolytes as well as their cardiac output. They also tend to lose thermoregulatory control. So hypo or hyperthermia can develop in those patients. So Erythrodermic psoriasis or generalised pustular psoriasis is usually best managed as an inpatient. 
Okay. What does generalized pustular psoriasis look like? Generalized pustular psoriasis is mostly occurring in an erythrodermic state, but it can be just large patches of red skin, usually studded with what looks like blisters filled with pus, but that pus is sterile. It's full of neutrophils, but there's no infection there. So it may look like the patient has an infection because they're often febrile and unwell, but this is an inflammatory dermatosis. And what triggers um, can there be for pustular psoriasis? The most common trigger, certainly what's been seen in the past, has been with the abrupt cessation of systemic corticosteroids. So it's one of the reasons why we tend to not recommend using systemic corticosteroids for the management of psoriasis. Unfortunately, it can also be triggered off by infection, so that confuses people. Someone's febrile because they have an upper respiratory infection or zoster or other viral infections, so they're febrile and they're unwell, but that's precipitating an inflammatory dermatosis rather than it being a systemic infection. One of the rare triggers is pregnancy. So psoriasis usually occurs on the extensor surfaces. Now, there, I understand that there's a form called inverse psoriasis. Can you tell us more about, about that, please? Inverse psoriasis, like the palmoplantar pustulosis, can occur in isolation or can occur in the setting of chronic plaque psoriasis. So patients may have typical plaques on their elbows and knees and also have flexural involvement or they can have just flexural involvement. Classically, the patients are overweight, so it occurs in skin folds, but can occur under the breasts in women or in overweight men. It can occur in the axillae, in the gluteal cleft, also in the umbilicus, so really any fold of skin where there's skin on skin. And unlike typical plaque psoriasis where we have thick scaly patches of red skin, there's often no scale, often reported as being a glazed appearance. The skin may not be that much more thick than the surrounding skin, but certainly it's erythematous. And unlike other flactural dermatoses such as candida, it's still quite well demarcated without satellitosis. How is psoriasis diagnosed, Peter? Usually the diagnosis of psoriasis is fairly clear-cut if patients present classically. So if someone presents with red scaly plaques on their elbows and knees, the diagnosis is made clinically. Sometimes though, particularly if the psoriasis is in atypical sites or they just have flexural psoriasis or the psoriasis is not responding to therapy, then a bias biopsy and histopathological examination might be appropriate. But there's no other investigations that are required at this time. We've covered many interesting points about the clinical aspects of psoriasis. Tip number two. In dermatology, it's worthwhile spending a bit of time observing the rash distribution because that can give us a lot of clue to the diagnosis. Psoriasis is usually symmetrical and classically affects the extensive surfaces like the knees or elbows. Be sure to also look behind the ears, scalp, natal cleft and the nails. Now, we know that psoriasis doesn't only just affect the skin. Um, can you tell us about what are the comorbidities in psoriasis? A comorbidity is a condition that can occur in isolation, but is more common in the person with the primary diagnosis that you're concerned about. So for psoriasis, the most common comorbidity is psoriatic arthritis. 
the generally accepted figure is around about one in three people with psoriasis will eventually develop psoriatic arthritis. But estimates range from as little as 5% up to greater than 40% of people with psoriasis. It all depends a little bit on the criteria that you use and how long the individual has had the psoriasis. Generally, it's estimated that about three quarters of patients develop skin psoriasis initially and then joint disease or musculoskeletal symptoms somewhere down the track. Around about 15% or so present with musculoskeletal and skin manifestations simultaneously and about 10% of people will manifest primarily in the joints and then later, rather than being a seronegative rheumatoid arthritis, it will be determined they actually have psoriasis that's appeared and that's the form of arthritis that they have. What would you look for in people with psoriatic arthritis? Psoriatic arthritis can occur as a peripheral uh, polyarthritis, particularly affecting the fingers and toes, but it can also occur as an oligoarthritis affecting the large joints, elbows, knees, shoulders, hips. And then, so we often talk about peripheral arthritis or it can be an axial arthritis or spondyloarthritidy. So we tend to separate the axial disease from the peripheral disease, but psoriasis can also affect the emphyses, so where tendons insert into joints. So enthesitis is a common presentation of psoriatic arthritis, as is dactylitis or sausage digits. I have a lot of patients who have difficulty walking from plantar fasciitis, which is enthesitis. Do you actually um, screen your psoriatic patients for arthritis? I do screen my patients for psoriatic arthritis. A couple of clinical clues include involvement of the nails, involvement of the postericular scalp, and the gluteal cleft. But we use a screening questionnaire. There are a range of screening questionnaires that really give a clue as to whether or not someone should be considered as having psoriatic arthritis. They're not diagnostic, but they're really a way of saying, well, this person doesn't have psoriatic arthritis or this person we should consider it and either investigate further or get other specialists involved. And this, if you think someone has psoriatic arthritis, you know, is it reasonable to refer patients on to a rheumatologist? I think it's really important to realise that whilst there are concerns that untreated psoriasis will result in resident memory T-cells taking up position in the skin, so it will be an immunological scar, psoriatic arthritis can cause joint destruction and that can occur within six months of the onset of joint disease. So it's really important to get on top of psoriatic arthritis early whether that's involving a rheumatologist or some dermatologists may feel that particularly if we're moving on to biological therapies because of the overlap between indications, then using an agent that will treat both skin and musculoskeletal symptoms would be the most appropriate way forward. But certainly we do not hesitate to involve rheumatologists. Cardiovascular disease seems to be quite a big thing in psoriasis, and we've mentioned before about obesity being one of the risk factors for psoriasis. Are there any other risk factors um, related to psoriasis? There is some evidence to suggest that severe or moderate to severe psoriasis is in itself an independent risk factor for cardiovascular disease, both uh, heart disease and cerebrovascular disease. But each of the conditions that we know are drivers of cardiovascular disease 
in addition to obesity, cigarette smoking, hypertension, hyperlipidemia and diabetes are all more common in people with psoriasis. Why is it important to address cardiovascular um, disease in psoriasis? One of the leading causes of excess death in patients with psoriasis is cardiovascular disease. Also, patients with psoriasis are more likely to develop some forms of malignancy. And particularly if patients are on immunosuppressive therapies, then there are concerns about infection. But one of the more treatable or avoidable uh, morbidities associated with psoriasis is cardiovascular disease because of these other comorbid conditions occurring. You mentioned before that uh, psoriasis in itself um, is an independent risk factor for cardiovascular disease. Do we have any idea why that might be the case? There has been a change in thinking. So whilst not claiming to be a cardiologist, unlike the way it was thought of in the past where the the vessels are pipes that you develop uh, scale on that eventually cause occlusion, the plaques in cardiovascular disease are dynamic inflammatory places or chronic inflammatory plaques, just like we have plaques of psoriasis. So the systemic inflammation that we see in psoriasis and in other inflammatory conditions such as rheumatoid arthritis or inflammatory bowel disease, just that chronic systemic inflammation with similar cytokines driving uh, can lead to cardiovascular disease. So if you actually look at the inflammatory cascade in cardiovascular disease, very similar to what we see in psoriasis. Is there anything we can do to reduce the cardiovascular burden in people with psoriasis? Certainly we know that with the, the comorbidities, if we can reduce them, so if we can work on patients' weight, if we can treat their hypertension, if we can treat their diabetes and their dyslipidemias, then we're helping with their cardiovascular disease. Weight reduction or cessation of smoking will help with psoriasis, but will also decrease cardiovascular risk or cardiovascular burden. Also, some of the therapies that we use for psoriasis, particularly methotrexate and the tumor necrosis factor inhibitors, have been shown to decrease cardiovascular risk. Peter, one of the problems about skin disease is it stigmatizes patients. And we've all seen patients with very, very severe psoriasis who are psychosocially very impacted. Um, I think historically psoriasis has been particularly uh, bad for patients. It was lumped in before germ theory with leprosy. So, you know, this this real fear of stigma uh, in psoriasis is a, is a real issue. Do you see psychological problems in, you know, patients with severe psoriasis? Patients really with any form of psoriasis are more likely to have, in particular, anxiety and depression. It's particularly an issue if the psoriasis occurs on exposed sites, so if there's involvement on the backs of the hands or the nails or the face. It makes it very difficult for people because everyone else is aware of their condition. So whether it's the inflammatory load with severe psoriasis or whether it's the visible appearance, certainly we know that those rates of anxiety and depression are higher. Just about any patient with significant psoriasis will tell a story of where there has been a negative social interaction, particularly if, for example, they've been in a restaurant, either as a customer or as serving in a restaurant, 
or if they're in retail, where people will want to interact physically, but they'll recoil when they see the psoriasis present. So that is particularly with this association that maybe it's a contagious condition and I'll develop it. I think it's important really for any healthcare professional to realise how much of a psychosocial impact psoriasis has. The condition which is visible, so others can see it, occurs at the time that people are developing their social networks and their own personality and it's visible. So it can occur, as we've already noted, late adolescence, early adulthood. It's a really crucial time in people's personal development. What this often results in is higher rates of unemployment social isolation, and probably contributes to those negative uh, lifestyle factors like cigarette smoking and alcohol consumption. So we really need to have at the forefront of our mind just how much this condition impacts people's quality of life, which has been shown now in a number of studies to be as dramatic as having a diagnosis of cancer. Are there any other comorbidities, Peter? We know that some forms of cancer are more common in people with psoriasis, particularly skin cancer and lymphoproliferative disease. Some of the way of reducing though that risk factor may be by giving up smoking, drinking less and working on obesity. We know that inflammatory bowel disease is more common in people with psoriasis and psoriasis is more common in people with inflammatory bowel disease. Liver disease, particularly non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, is more common in people with psoriasis and also the rates of uveitis are higher than the general population. Here's tip number three. When we see psoriasis, don't forget to ask about the joint symptoms because of the association with psoriatic arthritis. Cardiovascular disease is the leading cause of death in people with psoriasis, so optimising these risk factors is crucial. Also, remember that psoriasis is a visible disease and it causes significant psychosocial impact on those who are affected. That's the end of part one of podcast on psoriasis. We would like to acknowledge our production team, Maddie Schwaster for podcast editing, Peter Monaghan and Joanne Coughlin for podcast support. We also want to thank Dr. Sunny Singh, the general practitioner who helped us review the content, and of course, Associate Professor Peter Foley for giving up his time. Thank you for listening to another episode of Spot Diagnosis. We hope it's been educational for you. Stay tuned for part two of psoriasis, where we'll be talking about the management of psoriasis. We hope you've enjoyed this podcast. Remember, these podcasts are not meant to replace medical advice. If you have a skin condition that requires attention, we strongly encourage you to see your medical practitioner. For those who would like to access some further information of this subject, we have placed a transcript together with some further education and information resources for you on our website. I also want to do a shout out for the GP education events that we run at the Skin Health Institute. Just go to spotdiagnosis.org.au. Please share Spot Diagnosis with your friends and colleagues. Rate and review us. Let us know what you think. We would really appreciate your feedback and any suggestions. Thank you for listening.